The Business of Portland podcast. Every week, editor Vance Tong, reporter Joseph Gallivan, and reporter Stephanie Basiliga bring you an insider's look at some of the stories affecting Portland's business community. The Business of Portland podcast is brought to you by Pamplin Digital Media. Hyperlocal broadens its reach. Now your community news partner can help your business get a better return on investment when you advertise to your target market. If you are interested in learning more, please email us at digital at pamplinmedia.com. Now, here's Business Tribune reporter Joseph Gallivan. I'm Business Tribune reporter Joseph Gallivan. Welcome to the podcast. And I'm reporter Stephanie Basiliga. Today, I'm going to be talking about Place, a Portland landscape architecture and urban planning and design firm that recently won a big award at the International Architecture Master Prize competitions. And Joseph, what do you have this week? I'm talking about Adam Arnold. He's a tailor and a clothing designer based in Nepal. And he's an example of a creative Portlander under a bit of a squeeze, but incredibly analog in his methods. So he's very little digitized uh, in the new economy. He's doing things the old way. You don't hear about tailors all that often. No. I can think of two downtown where you might take a jacket to have it relined or something big. But um, Adam Arnold's business is in the Pearl now, but most people would know him from the east side. He was near Sheridan Fruit Company for nine years. He was like the cool guy in a big warehouse building. And the landlord put his rent up like a bit every year and it was up to 2500 this year. And then the landlord said he wanted to put it up to 5000 That's crazy. So That's crazy. he was like, no negotiations. So he said, I'm out of here. Luckily, a client for whom he makes clothes had this space in the Pearl, which is near Cafe Umbria, like around there, like mm-hmm. 12th. Yep. It's basically a bare bones warehouse. So he had to... No heating, it's got a sink, no bathroom. So he had to like deck it all out himself and move his whole business in there. But that's what he does. You know, he has this big table. People come in, he measures them, makes a paper pattern. Then he makes a um, a kind of mock garment right. out of tulle or something, you know, like cotton. And then they come in, they get measured again and fitted. Then he makes a cardboard pattern They come back again for final fitting with the actual fabric and then they're done. So you can get like a suit, a man suit is about $2,000, a blouse or something is about $300. And his thing is he will also design for you. So if you bring a swatch of fabric or you come in with an idea, he will sketch it for you and make the pattern, make the item. So it's like full service tailoring. So he's more than just a tailor. He's... A designer. Yeah, he's a designer. And he always was. He went to the Pacific Northwest College of Art and did sculpture and discovered... He always dressed weird and made his own clothes mm-hmm. in middle school in Vancouver, Washington. So he'd get, like, hassled. Then he went to San Francisco and decided after studying clothing construction that he wanted to be a designer. Who are his clients? You know, who, how, how does he kind of get the word out there? Is it word of mouth or yeah, does he have just repeat Yeah, it's totally clients? word of mouth. After 20 years in Portland, it's all people who refer other people. So if you look on his chalkboard, there are these names written in this sort of florid script. And they all sound like grown-ups because they're getting <laughs> slacks and they're getting sports <laughs> And blouses. And blouses. <laughs> I don't think I even own a blouse. <laughs> And so I said to him, well, are they all just like rich people from the West Hills? He's like, oh, my God, no. Rich people make the worst clients. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't really elaborate why, but I think his people are like creative people who save up. They really value 
a custom-made item and they value fit. When machines can make clothes so easily now, you really, your best selling point is fit, that everything just fits perfectly. Yeah, because machines may make clothes, but I can tell you there are a lot of clothes out there that you go out and, and buy that just when you put them on and they just don't fit. Mm-hmm. They don't fit. They're not made for everybody, mm-hmm. everybody's body. Yeah. And I think that, that I, I can see a definite attraction to, especially if there's a piece like a suit that you want to wear and impress people at work, I can see why it would be worth spending the money on that. Mm-hmm. And people do. And actually, he said he didn't even notice the Great Recession till he kind of, someone told him there was a recession on, because his work was steady. People start buying the smaller items, but they still came in for the big suit, the big wedding gown, you know, all the big ticket items. So he had steady work through the recession. And he does it all himself. He doesn't have anybody who... There's no assistant. To have an assistant would cost him a lot of money and, you know, payroll kind of charges and insurance and all that. So he works 11 hours a day, six days a week. But he loves what he's doing. He, he adores what he's doing. In fact, I asked him why he hasn't digitized what he does because there are scanning patterns, you know, there are all sorts of ways of digitizing the process. And uh, this is what he said. The whole reason I went to school to study clothing and fashion design is that I love every aspect of it. Like mm-hmm. um, I love pattern making and fabric and sketching and people and measuring and mm-hmm. fittings and I love all of that oh, wow. and in fact my um, so it seemed kind of tragic that all of a sudden I would end up sitting at a desk making quite a bit of money and like not doing a single thing that I loved so he, his progress was San Francisco he got a job as a designer and found he was really just making photocopies and that was in the 80s And it wasn't what he wanted. So he'd had this vision. He had an aunt who worked in Seattle. He'd seen her job and it was sketching and pattern making. And her her office in Seattle, a corner office, opened onto the floor where they made all the samples. That must have been awesome. He loved it. And so he went to Seattle looking for that. Got another job. After a week, realized it was the same thing, photocopying. Mm -hmm. He wasn't doing things with his hands. So he went totally freelance, started like... He did alterations, he, he would make things for the stage, for the theatre, cobbled things together. So over time he built up clientele and a skill and it became where cutting things out is almost like, it's like breathing to him. There's like no separation between his brain and body and it's like the 10,000 hours rule, the Malcolm Gladwell right. thing, you become a master of something after 10,000 hours. So then I asked him about being a designer and moving to Portland, and this is what he said. I didn't call myself a designer until I really felt confident that mm-hmm. that I could pretty much make anything that anyone might ask me to make. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have a lot of focus in terms of like, this is what I design at that point. It was just more like, if somebody would pay for it, I would make it, and I'm yeah. I would learn how to make it. Yeah. So I was doing a lot of, um, different kinds of things, but just doing fittings and learning fit. And so it wasn't until I moved to Portland in 2002, moved back here, that I I designed a collection, took it to a few stores in Portland, ended up, uh, Mimi and Lena on Northwest 23rd ended up placing an order. And then I just graded the patterns in different sizes and I felt totally qualified and prepared to do that and then i talked to him about you know 
digitizing things and um, why he doesn't do it. And this is how he explained that. There's definitely, you know, equipment that you can use to like digitize a pattern and grade mm -hmm. patterns. I've just always loved using my brain. And I think that there's, there's something inspiring that lies in every step of the process yeah. of making a, making a garment. So he lives, I mean, he's very frank. He lives in this uh, little studio apartment. He has an MG that he doesn't really drive. He lives a very kind of contained life. And it's kind of like, you know, these city politicians are always promoting Portland's creative class. Right. But in fact, it's, it's incredibly hard for them to afford to live here anymore. And I think there's a danger that people like that will move away. I don't know. I, I mean, he loves what he does, so he's happy in that sense. And he does it brilliantly, but it's kind of a, a yeah, it's kind of a wake up call really to to the city that if he didn't get a deal on his rent from a client, he would be forced to go and work in Sandy or something like that. And even with with a deal, he's living. I mean, he's working without water and heat, and so mm -hmm. I mean, it's it really is bare bones, and it really is a struggling <clears throat> artist. Yeah. So if somebody's interested in finding out about having a piece of custom clothing made, does he have a website? I know he doesn't do digital stuff, but does he? how, how do they get in touch with uh, him? He does have a website. It's adam-arnold.com. He also teaches that at PNCA, and uh, he teaches basic clothing construction to the sculptor students. And he says the kids who know something already are the hardest ones to teach because they have to unlearn what they <laughs> know. Do what they do. And, and they he know. knows that because he was that kid. <laughs> And you can read that story about Adam Arnold in our Thursday, November the 7th edition of the Business Tribune, and it's online right now. All right. It's a great story. I really enjoyed reading it and, and kind of learning about Adam and what he does. Thank you. And you're writing about a uh, fantastic landscape architect firm called Place. Place has a Portland location. It got its start in Portland, and it has a studio on Northwest 18th Avenue, but it also has studios around the world. So it has about 30 people. It started out with four founders and two other employees. And next year will be its 10-year anniversary. So it has 30 employees and it has studios in addition to Portland and Seattle, Tokyo, Bogota, and Singapore. They do work around the, the world. Mm -hmm. And it actually has earned them quite a reputation. Um, people have seen their work here. They've seen it in the Edith Green and Wendell Wyatt Federal Courthouse building. They, oh, right. Yep. They, what did they do around that? Did they do the plants up the side? Yep, they actually were brought in. They were brought into, um, I don't know if you remember, but originally they were going to have one entire side of the building all the way from the ground up to the top was going to be a living wall. Mm -hmm. And they were actually brought in to explain why it wouldn't work. <laughs> and, hmm. and, and the end result was that they came up with the vines that are now growing up the building that actually have done really well and are at 30 or 40 feet and have to constantly be cut back. So what kind of stuff have they done around Portland that we can go and look at? Well, in, in addition to the Edith Green and Wendell Wyatt, they also worked on Harper's Playground. I don't know if you've heard about that, but it was the first time that, that inclusive design was used in a play area. And they actually did that as part of, they do quite a bit of pro bono work, and they did that as part of their pro bono efforts. The people behind that came to them and said, you know, we've pretty much asked everyone mm -hmm. and no one is willing to help. Cody, right? Cody did yes. it for his yeah. daughter. Yeah, and Place was like, how could we not do it? And they actually, the experience there has allowed them 
to go on to take on City of Portland park projects, which are now all using inclusive design. And that's actually something down the road that we'll probably be doing a story about. Is that right? Yeah. So I see a lot of playgrounds now with the with the, just they're all spongy and yep. the, and the swings are all different. Is that the kind of thing that's inclusive? Yep. The whole idea is making it so that everyone, every kid can go and play there. And actually interested in learning a little bit more about it. They've agreed to talk to us about that for a story in the future. Mm-hmm. So place, they always do first Thursday. I've often gone in there and it's one of those old buildings with lots of windows. So it's very inviting. Go in, it's like very architecty. But then there's like motorbikes sitting around and they, so they're, they're kind of active in their space, aren't they? They are. They are. The building was a former warehouse and it actually housed a like a printing company. So when you walk in, the floors are all kind of dinged and pitted and they you can still see like the colors, the paint, red and yellow where machines were that they've left the remnants of. But it's a big open space. And back when they moved in there, no one was doing that in Portland. So they really kind of were ahead of their time when it came to creating this open work environment. Mm -hmm. But they are also very, very passionate about art. So they have a studio, like a workspace in the back where they do their 3D installations and their models and that sort of thing. But it's just as likely that you'll walk in there one day and find their employees all working on it on an art project together. Oh, okay. So they also do a lot with the community. They just finished up with an 80-piece art exhibit. They brought in a calligraphy artist who did a live performance and actually like painted calligraphy on the walls. Hmm. And they brought in aerialists who like acrobats who hung from the ceiling, they're always looking for new ways to use their space, new ways of expression, new ways to communicate art. But they really, really are very involved with the community. So all of their exhibits are pretty much, and their events are pretty much open to the public to come in and participate. The motorcycles are also part of that because they are all Ducatis, which are some of the most beautiful bikes on the planet, at least in my opinion. And they're all working bikes. And so Mauricio Villarreal, who is one of the founding principals, said that he will often, on an afternoon, jump on one of those bikes and take it for a ride. (laughs) So they're as much art as they are. A useful tool to get around town for Mm -hmm. Mauricio, apparently. And is their style, um, is there any way to define what they've done? Is Is inclusiveness popular now in Singapore and all over the world? They're, they're really, really big on public space and creating space that is beautiful, but is also going to be able to be usable by people. Because Mauricio and said that, you know, when I was talking to him, that it doesn't do you any good to create a beautiful space if people don't want to use it. You've accomplished nothing. And so that's something that they're always, always kind of working toward. About half of their work is referral. So they're private projects for clients they've worked with before. But the other half of their projects are public. Mm-hmm. So they go out for bid and they, you know, they do a lot of work with the city of Portland. They've done several projects in China, basically like helping design these huge, huge city block projects hmm. that are, you know, basically building a little city within a city. Wow. Yeah. They do some really amazing work. They've won three awards at the recent Architecture Master Prize Awards. One of them was for Hasselhoff on 8th. One of them was for the Edith Green Wendell Wyatt project. And then the third one was for a sculptural park that they did for Swarovski. The Crystal People? The Crystal People. Right. It's amazing. It's really, really incredible. It's just sculptures in this kind of garden park-like setting. And then right after they learned about those awards, they were getting ready to go to the the awards ceremony, which was held in October in uh, the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. 
and they found out that they actually were named the 2019 Landscape Architecture Firm of the Year. Hmm. Out of all the firms in the world. For the world. <laughs> That's for the world. It's huge. That's cool. And it's the first time that these Firms of the Year awards were presented. So they got to bring um, all their people and get up on stage, and they said it was really, really an amazing experience. And while they know it's going to bring them some new clients, they said, you know, for us, the awards are great, but we're still going to keep doing what we do. It's mm-hmm. worked all this time. It's what we love doing. And they are looking now at kind of what they do going forward as they kind of head into their 10th year in business They're going to remain humble Portlanders. They are going to remain humble Portlanders. And, you know, anybody who is looking for something to do on a first Thursday, I say go in their space and check yeah, it out because they always have something interesting there. People, Very yeah. much so. Thanks. When is that story running? That story is in the November 19th issue of the Business Tribune, and it is already online. And in the calendar this week, December the 10th, the SMPS, which is a marketing group, having the Anti-Social Social, which is a fundraiser for Rosehaven, but it's for the people in the AEC industry architecture, engineering, and construction meet at the Eleanor, which is that Shown place on the corner by the 405. We see long lines outside there. They have a lot of events on. there. They throw 1605 Northwest Everett, and it's 4.30 to 6.30, and it costs $45. But if you're a schmoozer in that industry, it's probably worth it. December the 10th. And in bids, the Douglas County Parks Department is accepting bids for a rehabilitation project at Umqua Dunes Campground, that's in Winchester Bay, Oregon. The project scope includes rehabbing 27 campground sites, including all utilities, and installing a precast restroom building. The deadline to submit proposals is 2 p.m. on November 26th. For more information about the project, including accessing solicitation documents, visit the Bids and Subits page at biztrib.com or go to biztribmarketing.com. That's it for this week's podcast. All our stories are available on biztrib.com. I'd like to thank Adam Arnolds for contributing his audio and our engineer, Alicia Ralph. The Business of Portland podcast has been brought to you by Pamplin Digital Media. Hyperlocal broadens its reach. Now your community news partner can help your business get a better return on investment when you advertise to your target market. If you're interested in learning more, please email us at digital at pamplinmedia.com. The Business of Portland podcast is produced by the Pamplin Media Group, Oregon's largest locally owned source of news and advertising. For more business news, pick up a copy of the Business Tribune, Tuesdays in standalone racks, and Thursdays in the business section of the Portland Tribune. Or to hear more of our podcasts, go to biztrib.com.